You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. Welcome to Angus Underground. I'm Corbin. I'm here with Dave and Joe, and we've got a little bit different episode planned for you guys today. How's it going over there, David? It's great. It's great. We normally record these midday, and we're recording this episode at night, so we're going to call it Angus Under the Cover of Darkness. Angus Under Night. (laughs) Joe, what's up? It's miserable here. If you really (laughs) want to know it's miserable, I got an upside down pineapple white claw, which is the last white claws I have. I've got terrible bandwidth. I don't know if this is going to last. Sean is mad at me, and we still have 46 minutes of taping to go. Yeah, I tell you what, Sean is mad at all of us. With reason, with good reason. Yeah, poor Joe. Poor Joe, who lives in the bastion of, I don't know, let's not go there, but he lives in California, and he, for some reason, has no internet access there. It's ridiculous. It works for the plethora of useless Zoom meetings that I go on with the Oh, there he went. <laughs> it's a remix, right? It's in and out, in and out. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. So David, how's the bull delivery going? Is that going swimmingly? Uh, no, we're, we're uh, now what? About 10 days out from our sale. We spent all of last week getting cows moved, calves vaccinated, all that business and scheduled to leave bright and early tomorrow morning for my first bull deliveries. Hopefully we can run hard for about two, two and a half weeks and get it knocked out. But we had a great sale, by the way. And we're recording this. We're a couple of days ahead of Thanksgiving, but our sale was about 10 days ago. We had a great, great sale. We were just blessed. We had bulls and females going to 19 different states into Canada. So we have a lot of deliveries ahead of us. Joe was there. Joe was there to cheer me on and help me. We always get stressed right around sale time. We have one big payday a year, so the stress can build, but it always helps when I have good friends there. Joe, thank you for being with us. It was a good time. It was a good time. And the stress of a sale, it's kind of an interesting perspective. My partner pointed out one time, if you're a commercial guy and you're listening to our program here, if you have six loads of feeder cattle, which is probably equivalent to if you loaded up all David's bulls, it would have been close to six loads of cattle. You have six loads of feeder cattle. You cannot even pay attention to the markets and you can guess what your cattle are worth between ten to 15000 Genuinely, we don't know within 250000 no. Think about no. it. You don't know. And it makes it so difficult to budget. And that's where the stress comes in. But I was really surprised. It was an interesting dynamic. One thing I learned, Whenever I go to a David Brown sale, there's a dark cloud around me. Because when I was in Idaho Falls, I got in a wreck and a snowstorm. <laughs> then I come in. I'm not in Kalispell five minutes. The Popo's got me pulled over in front of the Hampton Inn Suites because I made an illegal maneuver out of the steakhouse. Wow. And I didn't have my lights on, apparently. She was really kind. It was good. But interesting dynamic at your sale. I didn't get a chance to tell you this. Had a great time, by the way. Really enjoyed interacting with the folks, networking with new people. Hanging out with Dave Mullins, that was fantastic. Dave's awesome. He he brings so much to us. It's a non-traditional sell manager role for him. We do our own catalog. We do our advertising. But Dave's there more as a sounding board for me. I put the sell order together. Well, I want his input. I pin the cattle before he gets there. I want his input. So he brings a lot to the table and then it represents our cattle very, very professionally. And that means a lot to me. I mean, he's a guy that comes in a couple of days ahead and actually walks the pens and goes through the cattle and studies the cattle, has copious notes. And so when someone calls, I can send them Dave's way and he can represent the cattle for exactly what they are. So we're very, very blessed to have him on our team. And that's the one thing, you know, as we hearken back to our episode about marketing is it, it really requires a team. I mean, yeah, we raise the cattle, we develop the cattle. And we represent the cattle, but we can't possibly answer every phone call, get back to everyone who does call. We can't answer every email. So we rely on guys like Dave Mullins and even Joe. Joe, I, I handed you orders, handed you a phone, and I said, hey, let's let's go. And I'll tell you, that's the most fun ever. Yeah. My cousin, who I absolutely put on a pedestal in this business, quintessential cowboy, runs a lot of commercial cows. I asked him, I said, if you could retire and do anything, what would it be? And he said, I wouldn't own a cow. I'd just help people. 
I said, what do you mean? How would you not own a cow? And he goes, there's no stress, Joe. You go <laughs> hang out. This guy hands you some orders. You talk to him on the phone. It doesn't matter if he buys four or if he doesn't. Yeah. And every person that I interacted with, I had a great time. What I was going to say earlier before I got the remix going and you had to cover for me because my bandwidth was bad. Dave Mullins, when I sit down, he told me it was kind of a fun little banter we had, right? Make your notes and then let's compare them that evening. We went through and we pegged every single lot except one bull. And I can remember what it was and it doesn't matter for this podcast, but we agreed on everything except for that one bull. Saw all the females the same, saw the bulls the same. And when I think about what I really enjoy in this business, it's the evaluation and the quest for the ideal that fits your program. And when you talk with someone like Dave, who has a similar eye for stock and a similar eye for quality, it was so fun. It was fun to talk to him about show pigs. I had a good time, but bigger scheme of your sale, a critique, interesting mix, really heavy on commercial folks to see them there and engaged and hammering on those bulls. But then we shifted gears into the female sale and it was like two different sales. There was some crossover, but there was just like, I mean, those bulls, there was just constant bidding, but slow between Superior and then also Sale Ring Live. There's action there. There's action on the seats back and forth. Of course, you had folks that had reserved time to orders with folks like me and Dave and yourself and others. But to see that banter commercial and then that first heifer came in and it was like somebody shot fireworks out of the ring, right? And it was a completely different show. <laughs> but to see the beauty in both of that and see those two crowds kind of interface there. I guess it kind of summarized what draws me to your program, what made me inquisitive about your program in the beginning and why we started this relationship that we have now. Well, and I don't know if in the future, you know, it's a really viable concept of selling bulls and females at the same time, but I love that dynamic there where you've got these commercial cattlemen who they come in and they see us once a year and see our bulls, they appreciate the bulls, but they're also, they have the ability to look at the females, their heifer mates. And I think that lends a lot of credibility to the bull side. We do it a little differently than most. I know you go to some of these production sales and they sell the females first and the bulls kind of play a second fiddle and they sell last. But <laughs> I just love selling those bulls up front, getting those commercial guys to stick around and watch the female sale. And I, I love the purebred producers that come in there. They're interested in females and they get to watch what I think is just kind of a good old fashioned country bull sale and watch these commercial guys kind of button heads and it's a lot of fun for us, but anyone out there who's listening that supported us or, or just followed along with us, that's awesome. Joe, by the way, today was lining up some deliveries for tomorrow. And I called a gentleman and said, Hey, I want to bring these cattle to you. And he said, by the way, I met this guy. He said, I was out there looking at bulls and he was across the alley looking at females and we introduced each other. And he said, his name was Joe Fisher. And I said, Oh my, he was really impressed with you, Joe. And the one thing he said, he said, I never knew that you guys had a podcast. And he said, Joe was telling me about it. He said, you know, in the next seven days, he said, I've really just been tuned into your podcast and really enjoyed it. And that meant so much to me. In fact, I said, well, I appreciate you listening. I said, I am a little disappointed that you don't have a little more going on in your life that you can spend seven days listening to our podcast. (laughs) I feel bad for being that bored. (laughs) No, it's really cool though, because I've known him for years you know, he's wanting to dive deep into this purebred side and he's wanting to learn. And he said, you guys are really hitting on some topics that I had on my mind. So that meant a lot to me. So my embryologist was the same. And we're recording in between where we've had an opportunity to visit on air again, but our embryologist came here in between the last recording and he was inquisitive. He'd seen it somewhere. I don't know if it was a friend's Facebook because he doesn't have one or something, but he'd heard about it. And he's a red Angus breeder. Yeah. And so I text him the link to the Jordan Rhodes one. And and he sent me text this morning. He goes, what's he talking about birth weight on this and that? So guess what? I called Jordan Rhodes because I don't know their scale or anything. And Jordan kind of filled me in and I got back to him and it's a useful tool. I mean, it's this vehicle for information for folks and this conduit that we'd hoped to be. And I think it's fun. And it's fun that there's been so much positive response from the commercial world because really the purebred industry is so galvanized into we're our own little tribe sometimes. And there's really vocal minorities, I call them. But the commercial person is the one that has the pulse on the heartbeat of the beef industry. And if those folks are given their nod of approval, 
then to me, it really means something of what we're doing. And thank you guys for listening. Gosh, it's the most humbling thing you could do week after week, frankly. Yeah, no question. Well, I think it's kind of funny that you guys bring up the Jordan Rhodes episode. I don't think any of us foresaw what was going to happen with that. It's been kind of crazy. You know, I know Jordan's been very thankful, but from my perspective, during that episode, I wasn't really vocal. I just kind of sat back and listened because Jordan was so intriguing and he had so much to say. And it was... Oh, dude, absolutely. Man, I'm telling you, it was... It was uplifting to someone like me who's in a similar situation. It was crazy. And after that, I called Jordan on my own and we struck up quite the friendship. And I know from talking to Jordan that he's had so many different people call him. And we just want to thank you guys for giving Jordan the time of day. And and we know that he's worthy. You know, I mean, that's the guy. He's the guy. You know, and I don't want to beat this horse to death, but I've had multiple conversations with Jordan since that episode aired. Jordan said I was just totally unprepared for the reception that he's received, the number of calls, folks reaching out to him, people wanting to do business with him. And then just this past weekend, just three days ago, Ginger Hill, our good friend, Brooke Miller, had his annual production sale. And man, I tell you what, that was a historic sale for the state of Virginia. Wow. Wow. I mean, tremendous bull sale there. And and those bulls are going to all parts of the country. What a ball of fire that was for Brooke. Oh my gosh. He has a great, great program with awesome cattle. And if we helped him in any way reach the masses, then that's great. And that's kind of the intention of what we're doing here, because we want to highlight those that might run under the radar from the mainstream. And we look forward to having a lot more folks on here in the coming weeks and months that are just like Brooke Miller. That's the beauty of multimedia, right? Absolutely. Like between social media and maybe we had a part, maybe we didn't, I don't know, but and there's a lot of folks, just like you said, there's piles of them just like him that are quality breeders of livestock out there doing their own thing with their own customer base with really usable and applicable genetics across this whole country. And man, to tell those stories, those are the ones we want to share. Absolutely. And you want to talk about formulating relationships. You know, you guys might listen to these podcasts and you might hear somebody that's maybe on the same wavelength that you are, and you might get to talk to that person and you might create a lifelong friendship. And that's what we're here for is we're here to make relationships. And that's what we're in. We've said it multiple times. We're in the people business and by all means, if one person finds somebody that they're compatible with, that's who they want to, you know, bounce ideas off of. Man, that is just, that fires me up like big time. It's the real deal. Hey guys, I'd like to share with you some information from one of our sponsors. With 48 years of continuous Angus breeding, Shadybrook Angus Farm is nationally recognized as a premier source of maternally dominant genetics. Many of the breed's most well-known and historically respected dams have resided at Shadybrook Angus Farm. Plan now to join Vince Santini on the second Saturday in April each year as he offers access to the Shadybrook program with females from the very top cut of the cow herd and elite herd sire caliber bulls. Visitors are always welcome at the farm near Leoma, Tennessee. For more information, visit ShadybrookAngusFarm.com. Again, ShadybrookAngusFarm.com. Now, back to the show. And so <laughs> we talked about our production sale here at Montana Ranch, and I said it's kind of a stressful time. And I know Joe, his sale was a couple of months ago, and that was a stressful time for him. But Corbin, I want to turn the spotlight onto you because you're going through something right now that may be stress-induced. <laughs> Maybe you want to enlighten our audience about that. I don't know how you want to refer to it, but it's like I've got a little friend with me. <laughs> I've grown some shingles and they're right above my eye. It's stress-induced. And as you guys both know, it's really stressful being in this business. You know, you just want to do right by everybody. And I tell you what, you never realize how much stress and anxiety you put on yourself until you've got a little friend growing above your eye. <laughs> well, I'm probably not the most sympathetic person in the world, but I would say cattlemen, ranchers, farmers, it's no secret. These folks are under a lot of pressure. Suicide rates for farmers and ranchers have been on the rise. And, and that's something that we do need to take very seriously. You know, it's, and I'd probably be the last one that needs to, coach anyone on coping with stress. But Joe and I have kind of talked about it. You know, Joe asked me, he said, do you get nervous? And I said, yeah, a little bit. And maybe 20 years ago, I got a lot more nervous than what I do now. But I guess I look at it this way when we're going into a sale. You know, you do the best you can. You make the calls. 
you do the advertising, you put a good catalog together, the cattle look the part, and it comes down to sell day. And yeah, you want to make sure that you get everyone called back. And, and I'm not perfect there, but we do the best we can. But that's what it is. You do the best you can. And so much of it's out of your hands when it comes to sale time. I think just time and experience has given me the context or perspective to look at it in that regard. I say I've, I've given it everything I can. It's either going to work or it's not. If it doesn't, we're going to learn from it and we'll make some changes and, and next time we'll be better. And I've had great sales and I've had poor sales and everything in between. But yeah, I think it's important to keep everything in perspective and in context. And, and I know that you've got a lot going on right now, Corbin. You're right upon your breeding season. So you're getting ready to breed cows. You're getting ready to flush cows, transfer embryos. And then I learned today that you've got another little stressor in your life surrounding your bulls. Tell us about that. Well, before I indulge too much into that, I just want to point out something that someone told me today. Because as you guys can imagine, through all this stress and all that, I talk to a lot of a lot of our listeners and a lot of people in my life that have just been soothing to me. And so if any of you have talked to me through this, just know that, man, I sure do appreciate it because some of this tough stuff, it's just, I need somebody to vent to. And I really appreciate those of you that have been there for me. So one of the things that stuck out to me is that someone I'm really close to said anxiety is a lot like energy. And so you have to be able to channel both and they both kind of coincide with each other. Those of you that know me know that I'm one of the most energetic people you'll ever meet. I can't sit still. I'm excited. I'm ready to make mating. You know, I go through my cattle every five seconds and I'm just picking them apart and just I can tell you anything about any one of them you want to know. But so, yeah, to get back to the things that have been stressful to me. So I've got bulls on test. And the, there's a contemporary group of 45. And of those 45, I can speak to about 26 of those bulls on that 45 head contemporary group. And recently we had them semen tested and 13 out of 26 of those bulls failed the semen test. So I reached out to both Joe and David and asked them for some insight. What did you guys tell me? Joe, why don't you go first? Because I think I might bloviate a little bit on this. And- well, I'll let you bloviate. I mean, I <laughs> buzzword. <laughs> I, told you, I was listening to the radio today and one of the talk show hosts said that the reps, I don't know, some of our elected officials were bloviating. And the first thing I said out loud while I was driving was, I wasn't in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in Tracy, California. He said, Joe Fisher? (laughs) Yeah, no, he didn't bring up me by name. (laughs) You know, I don't know why, but people grab onto their thing. And some folks grab onto semen testing as their thing. And I'll leave you with this one to start it. And this is going to sound bad. Ultimately, I have to guarantee the bulls. I have to keep that relationship intact with the bull buyer. I don't think of my customers as victims or someone that bought a bull from us. I think of them as customers and lifelong customers. And I have the obligation to fulfill certain needs. And one of them is getting their cows bred. And so frankly, I don't want to know if their motility is 99% or 4% or what it was. I want to know, will that bull settle cows? And the basic fact is, is there is no test to tell us if a bull is going to settle cows. What we have is is someone's best estimate based upon their years of expertise and observations in the business. And and some guys get to test a lot of bulls and some guys or gals don't. But it does seem like there is a level of, I don't know, veterinary mercenaries out there or something, it seems, where they enjoy failing bulls. It's almost like an ego trip or something like, like, I'm going to show you pure red breeder what kind of bull should sell and shouldn't. And there's certain ways you could bring a bull up. I mean, I've watched our guy that collects. He's done it for years and years. He collects for a semen company here. He'll collect, I think he said over 1,500 bulls a year or something, maybe closer to 3,000. I can't remember the number. And if I'd have been prepared, I'd have got those numbers for you. Scott's fantastic. He brings those bulls up so slow and he gets in rhythm with them and he teases them a little bit and always gets a good sample. And if he doesn't on some of these bulls, especially in a bull test situation, he'll say, oh, he looks a little stale. I have seen him fail him right away, but he'll also say, he looks a little stale. Let's run him out again. Or he'll run him out again and say, you know what, Joe, we're going to call him a retest. And he never really asks me what I think. He doesn't. He takes into context the management, the observations he has and the individuals. But then also we got to have the realization, this is a snapshot of that bull's fertility and libido about 60 days ago. 60, 90 days ago. That's what I think we have to pick up on. And so you also get this false pretenses. I mean, there's a guy here, they call him the damn vet, and he is damn good at a lot of things. He takes the first sample out of a bull, no matter what he gets, takes it in a styrofoam cup, spits it on a slide. And if he fails, he fails. If he passes, he passes. 
sent me two bulls. Bruin Ranch had two of their own bulls that passed with flying colors, turned them out with cows, and I did not get a single cow bred. So what is effective? It's like I told you in the beginning of my dissertation here, bloviating. I said, I don't really care if he's a 99 on motility. I don't care if he's got whips, mid-piece droplets. I don't. I want to know, will that animal settle cows? Will he settle a lot of them? And will he be reliable in the breeding pasture? And we take in all the data that we can. And ultimately, we stand behind those things because those customers are the people that are our lifeblood. And we want their cows to get bred. I want to ask David a question. So this is just point blank. From your experience, you have more experience than anyone I know in this business when it comes to testing bulls. What should the fallout percentage be? <laughs> thank you. For, and I get that that's a tough yeah, question. No, thank you for asking. I kind of harken back to when I did a lot of bulls at one time and we would test 550 bulls. You know, it'd take us four or five days to do that. And at the end of those four or five days, realistically, if we had 50 bulls, man, that was a lot. Usually it would be right around 30 bulls. And those 30 bulls, they were not abject failures. You know, of those 30, 25, 27 would be retests. And we'd bring those bulls back two weeks later. And of those 25, 27, probably 17, 18 of those would pass. And those that didn't pass, that was the end of the road for them. I mean, they got on a bus and they left. But what Joe said was very important. Number one is context. You know, where were these bulls 60, 90 days prior? What kind of stresses were they undergoing? I know when we're looking at testing bulls first of March around here for a spring sale, you know, those bulls have been through some weather. You're talking about December 1st. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have some freeze damage. I don't care how deep you bed the dang bulls here. They're going to get some freeze damage. So I think you have to always keep in mind the context where those bulls were 60 to 90 days prior to the test. And the guy that we use is much like the guy who Joe uses. We use Hoffman AI, Doug Coombs out of Utah. And the reason I use him is because that's what he does for a living. He collects bulls, freezes semen, and semen tests bulls. He's not a guy that has 30 different specialties. He has one. And I can think back, I'm going to go on a little bloviating mission now. I can think back 20-some years ago. So I'm living in Idaho. And we were using Hoffman AI at that time to test all of our bulls. And by the way, we had a fantastic herd veterinarian. You know, he was local to us, does a great job or did a great job, have the utmost respect for him. But the state of Idaho, the state of Idaho, actually, they passed a law that said only veterinarians, licensed veterinarians can perform semen tests. And I actually, boy, I went to bat against that because I said, why, why, why would you want a general practitioner? He's the only one qualified to operate on your brain for Pete's sakes. Come on, use a specialist. I can't speak for California, but Oklahoma is the same way. You have to be a DVM or you cannot put your name behind a semen test. Listen, I have the utmost respect for DVMs. Absolutely. 100%. I love them to death. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be one. We couldn't do this without No, 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 sure. no, not at all. Not at all. But I will say on semen test, I want to use someone who that's what they do for a living. And that's all they do for a living. A true specialist. And so often we see, I'll have bull customers. They'll call me. So we deliver the bulls. If we're having a fall sale, we're delivering in, in November, December. Those bulls are not going to get turned out until June for the most part. And so, yeah, the bulls, every bull that goes through our ring here is sold having passed a semen test. I mean, these bulls are sound breeders. However, in the next six months before they get turned out or seven months, whatever it is, those bulls will change. There's no question. And quite often, I'll have one of our customers call us in May or June and say, hey, this bull that I bought last fall, he flunked his semen test. And I'll do a little digging. I'll say, well, you know, who tested him? And they'll say, well, it's our local vet. And I said, what did he say? And they'll say, well, he just flunked him, said he's no good. I said, he didn't say he wants to come back in two to four weeks and retest. No, no, he's just no good. <laughs> and usually when I hear that, I'll go pick up the bull. I'll bring him a replacement, pick up the old one, bring him back and retesting. And I tell you what, when I do that, those bulls always pass that second test. It's just a snapshot in time, folks. Oh, and it's costing commercial customers a lot of money. 
Right. It's cost them a pile of money. It's ridiculous. Right. Because you're taking these things time and time again to get tested. And all the time they have their herd bulls out in a field. Sometimes even here, they lock them in smaller places and they might get a little bit stale and you have a bull that's outside of warranty. Yeah. yeah. And so the customer will test them and they don't even call or anything. And they just cut a bull's head off. They'll just ship him to town. And it's like, damn, that's $8,000 or seven or whatever the number is. That's just gone and has to evaporate. I mean, it's like I said, I absolutely have an utmost respect for our vets. We have great relationships with them. And on small things, we use a local vet up here, not my normal vet to test bulls, but in the lion's share of them, we want the guy that that's what he does to test bulls. How many times, David, you see him take an ejaculate and they start killing them and staining them and you just go, yeah, yeah. oh boy, if you've got to sit there and count him on a slide and he passes at 75, but at 74, he's no good. That is not <laughs> telling me that he's going to breed cows or not. No, no. And what I love about our guy is he's able to project. He says, here's where he's at today. I know this bull's not going to get turned out for a month. Here's where I think he'll be 30 days from now. And I think that's where a lot of folks that semen test bulls fall short. They think where that bull's today is where he's going to be 30 days from now. You have to think, especially if we're in late spring and early summer, these bulls have been standing around. Okay. It's cold. These bulls are not ejaculating on a daily basis. As it warms up, what do the bulls do? They become more active. They ejaculate more. They get cleaned out and... The stale semen's gone, and the bulls become instantly good when they tested poor two weeks prior. So, yeah, I feel for you, Corbin. So, it's going to kind of sound funny coming from me at this point. That's just something I feel like we might have kind of glanced over. It's funny that I'm saying this because I feel like I'm talking against myself. But at the same time, whenever you guys are going into your breeding season, and I just want everybody to know this because I don't want somebody to be left with their pants down and just get screwed. I still think it's a good idea to test your bulls before you turn them out in any given breeding season, right? I don't want to advocate that you guys just say, hey, these things are going to get these cows bred. Absolutely. But at the same time, what you're going to find whenever you're testing those bulls before, like, let's say you have a bull for 18 months and you're turning them out for that third season. What you're going to find more often than not is going to be a breeding injury. It's not going to be something where this bull is just no good because he just turned up no good, right? So if you have a bull, <laughs> I'm probably out kicking my coverage here going into something I don't have a ton of expertise in, but more opinion than anything else. It's experience though, David. You've got more experience than you give yourself credit. Yeah, but if you have an older bull that flunks a semen test, nine times out of 10 or, or more than that, a secondary test, two to four weeks later, that bull will pass, okay? Yeah, yeah, a lot of times it could be an injury. Up north here, it can be freeze damage, but usually those bulls will pass. Yeah, I counsel all of our customers, even though we deliver the bull, say, in, in late November, and they're not going to turn him out until June. Absolutely test that bull. And trick test him after you test, after you semen test him. Don't trick test him before yeah. you get a poor sample or he won't give one every time. Yep. And do it early enough ahead of your breeding season <laughs> that if he doesn't pass the first time, you can come back in four weeks and take a second test because you will find a high percentage of those that don't pass the first time will pass the second. And I can't stress that enough because usually what happens, we'll have a customer that are going to turn out, let's say June 1st. And they call the vet and the vet comes on May 25th to test bulls. And so then what happens, he has, you know, if he's turned out 10 bulls, he has three fail. He's on the phone with me. He's, he's in a panic. Oh, I need new bulls. I need new bulls. And I always tell them, Hey, just be patient. Let's test them again. And I know that they're up against the window where they need to be breeding, but get these bulls tested early. It's that simple. I'll tell you the other one I do, David and Corbin is I try my very best to test our bulls when we pull them. And a lot of times Scott will say something like, Hey, he looks a little thin. Has he been out with cows? Yeah. He's been working hard and he's just straight out of cows. Now, because if that bull will show a problem or an infection coming out of the breeding season, chances are where there's smoke, there's fire on that one yeah. because he's been active. He's been sexually active and pursuing cows. He's been leaned down. He doesn't have that fat stale deal going on. And then I always test them too, before we turn them out. But one of the big problems, I will tell you guys this, one of the scariest things as a bull provider is having a bull that doesn't perform for the customers. I do not want a customer with 30 open cows. And there's a lot of our folks here at California is so disjointed and parceled up. They got 30 bulls with a cow. If you put two bulls in that field, it'd be kind of overkill on the budget. It's just, it's this weird no man's land of over bull power. That's really expensive. 
but boy, you could end up with some open cows. So yes, test your bulls, test them often and pay attention to them. Right. Pay attention. If they aren't settling cows, it doesn't matter if they got bulletproof semen, right? Yeah, that's the key. And well, yeah. So one of the things I do whenever I buy a yearling bull, we're kind of getting off the rocking horse here, but <laughs> but one of the things I do if I buy a yearling bull or really any bull for that matter is I try to get that bull a cow in heat and I try to watch him perform and just make sure everything's working there because yeah. you just never know if a bull might not extend or if some of them just won't even jump up on a cow. You just never know. And that's good practice. I call it pen breeding. We do it here with first time bulls. If we've got several heifers in heat or several cows in heat, I'll bring them into the corral. I'll have the bull there in a pen, kick one in with the bull. And yeah, let's observe what this bull does. And and I tell you what, yearling bulls are frustrating. I mean, they- Absolutely. <laughs> and that's a large reason why I like selling older bulls because these bulls actually- their brains seem to work a little bit better and and they seem to be a little bit more aggressive with breeding. It makes me nervous when I sell yearling bulls, true yearling bulls, you know, 13, 14 month old bulls, because these bulls are immature. And it makes me doubly nervous when I buy a bull or keep a bull just like that at that age. And I'm relying on that bull to go in there and service females. I mean, they will absolutely drive me nuts. And Corbin, that's a good point. Do some pen breeding up front because it's not only going to give you a little bit of peace of mind that the bull knows what he's doing, but it's also going to teach the bull, hey, here's what I need to do. I need to get this cow bred, not worry about everything else in the pasture. Let's get this one bred. Yeah, it's a good teaching tool. Absolutely. This podcast is morphed into bull management. And <laughs> I'll give you my two cents. I like the yearling deal running with mature bulls. Absolutely. I really do because it trains them how to be a bull. They're a part of your management program. They don't get as heavy. They last longer. Typically, they won't T-bone those older bulls and, and get a broken penis or anything like that. I mean, I like using the yearling bulls once you've got on the program and you can mix them into the fold. I don't like putting them by themselves. It makes me terribly nervous. And, and like David, I mean, we sell Julys. We don't sell true blue 12-month-old bulls. There's something about the maturity that just changes. They look, they change from looking like a calf and to looking like a bull. That 12 months to 15-month difference, it might seem small to some people, but it's completely different. The way that bull sexually matures from 12 to 15 months, I've noticed that it's a big difference. But anyways, so when you guys are deciding to use a yearling bull, and we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but I think it could be really valuable, about how many cows, like let's say you're turning out a 15-month-old bull, about how many cows would you turn them out on? That's a depends for me. That's a depends. I mean, if they're close and I can keep a handle on them and watch them, I'll put them with plenty of cows. I'd put them with 40 cows if we AI and put them behind it. It's not a problem. But like we're going to take some cattle down to Winter Ranch here on the 10th, and there'll be 25 cows in two different fields. Those will each get an 18 month old bull. And then in the big place that'll get, I mean, they'll get close to a hundred cows. There'll be three or four yearlings in there and two big bulls. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty close to the numbers that I would recommend as well. If I'm turning out a 14 month old bull, you know, I'm probably 20 to 25 and I sort those cattle up, make sure that they're of a size that the bull can actually handle. And of course, we're not running on as big a country as what Joe is. So that's a little bit of an advantage that we have. But, you know, for the most part, we turn out a lot of 18-month-old bulls here. You know, that's the first time that they really go in with big sets of cattle. We've already been through. We've AI'd them once. And the bull will go in for two cycles. And our general head count in those groups are anywhere from 35 to 50. And at 18 months, if those cattle have been AI'd, I think a bull can handle that. And we're also watching those cattle. I mean, we're through them at least once a day. We're recording every heat that we see. And that's the other, the other bit that I try to preach to our customers. Yeah, you're a commercial guy and you aren't necessarily concerned with exactly when your females are bred, but it's more a point of keep a record so that if those females cycle back around, at that point, you know, hey, I may have something wrong with this bull here. Right. Pay attention. And you can do it early enough that you can alleviate any kind of long-term issue. You know, swap the bull out, get another one in there. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of watching the cattle and taking copious notes and referring back to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if you invest so much energy and time into them. I mean, really, if we're spending so much time and energy in them, we should be. Yeah, absolutely. We aren't calving first calf heifers checking them. But I mean, if you notice that 751's in heat, just make a note of it. And if she's back in heat... 
there is one common part of the equation, but there is another host of variables too. One I want to get back to though, because I think we went down the the semen evaluation libido route. But uh, one thing on some of these tests too, Corbin, um, and I saw it when I was at Cal Poly at 400 bulls, I think we had 420 or something on feed. There could be a nutrition component and there could be a disease component too. And I'm not saying that's what you got, but some of these places that chronically fail bulls, it's very simple. It's nutrition. It's some sort of disease. And I know disease is a bad word, but it just means not ease, right? Not normal or technician, nutrition, disease. And sounds like it's a roadmap of what's happened there before, but either way in the facility, they're probably failing more bulls than they should as a steward of those bulls. Either one of those components probably needs to change would be my opinion on its face. Yeah. And so we've kind of done some due diligence on the whole ordeal. And I've got some contemporaries that have done the same thing and they've been through the same situation. And it's one of those deals. It's a broken record where they failed these bulls and these guys have taken them home and they've passed on the first time they've run them through and rechecked them. So it just seems comical to me that we just keep putting ourselves in the same situation. But I think I've made the decision as to what to do in this situation, but hopefully it works out for me and we're moving forward with this. And the frustrating part is you're probably paying a premium for that service. Yeah. That's the frustrating part is when you pay that premium. And I've got shit growing on my head because of all the crap I'm having to deal with. It's like, it's like, man, can you guys not alleviate some of this pressure that I'm already feeling because I'm selling steers. This is just the past week for me and I'm not complaining because I love what I'm doing. This is the most fun I ever have. But This past week, I've sold steers. I've had a cow flush that she's had issues in the past. I'm trying to get these bulls ready to sell. It's a comedy of errors. It's just every single thing I try to do in this past week, it's been a pain in the ass, to be honest with you. (laughs) But, you know, I appreciate the struggle because I know that it's all worth it at the end. Would you like to join the underground as a sponsor? Let Angus Underground bring your product or event to our large and loyal following. For information... On how you can become a sponsor, contact us at 406-210-1366 or angusunderground at yahoo.com. Again, 406-210-1366 or angusunderground at yahoo.com. So we've hit on a topic probably more than what we envisioned when we started this particular episode. In this particular episode, we wanted to talk about... First calf heifer. (laughs) (laughs) Selecting donors for your program, embryo donors. And so we kind of went off on a tangent. And that's great because I think selection of embryo donors... Well, it falls right in line with fertility, I think. Well, it can. It can, (laughs) certainly. Let's shift gears and talk about that. What do you guys look for when you're selecting a female to go into your embryo program to donate embryos? It's not fun. So I'll tell you guys, I mean, come on, I'm going to bloviate. Some of these topics don't get terribly controversial because what we've been through, David and I think almost exactly the same. We were comparing notes before we started and I said, I think I'm going to surprise some people. He goes, oh, I know I'm going to surprise some people. We have pretty much the same damn notes on this topic. So Corbin, you go first. I'll share a little bit of David will, or David could chime in and I will, it'll be fine. But I think we're not terribly different on a lot on this stuff. Well, the only thing I can hope is when I share my thoughts here is that I'm not completely off base with what you two think. I don't want to be the idiot of the bunch, but I might be. But anyway, so whenever we talk about an embryo donor, what do we think about? And, you know, Joe and I were having a conversation earlier today. It's just all about what your goals are, right? So if your goals are to create these giant marbling numbers and create big EPDs, well, yeah, you might ought to flush the open heifer. But if you're trying to create longevity, you're trying to maintain maternal, you're trying to create a cow herd that is performance-based and is also proven, then you know you got to have some stringent details whenever you're going to select a donor. So if, if I'm going to select a three-year-old as a donor, you know it's going to be a very rare occurrence, but that donor, that three-year-old, it's never happened for me, I should point out. But that three-year-old, she better have really busted her ass as a heifer she better have bred back AI. And then I might think about it, collecting embryos as a donor. And that's on a very rare occurrence. And I would only do it once. I'm not going to collect four or five different three-year-olds. It's going to be a, you know, it's going to be one of those deals where I really want these cows to earn it. In my perfect world, that cow would be six or seven. She would have raised three or four studs and, and it would just be no questions asked. I think you have a good point there, Corbin. When you said perfect world, because I, I think, yeah, ideally, ideally in my world, you know, we're not going to touch a cow until she's had five or six calves. 
However, I think there are some extenuating circumstances, and I'll share with you our particular circumstances here at Montana Ranch. You know, it's no secret, five, six, seven years ago, we underwent kind of a reevaluation and restructuring of what we wanted from our cow herd. We were awfully mainstream back then, and certainly the numbers played a big role in what we did. And we've covered this in a previous episode where I said, I just wasn't happy with the cows. So we we changed our direction and we focused a lot more on maternal traits, productivity, convenience traits, structural soundness, all that stuff, fertility, you name it. However, in the process of doing that, I needed to repopulate my herd with the genetics that I thought would best suit us. So we've done it with a mix of cows. We've done it with those cows that have had five and six calves that have proven themselves beyond a reasonable doubt that they absolutely earned that right. And while we've done that, yeah, I, I told Joe leading into this episode, I, I said, I'm not comfortable with this topic because I'm going to prove myself to be a huge hypocrite here because I do flush some two-year-old cows. And so why would I flush a two-year-old cow here? Because ultimately, ultimately, what I'm selecting for is the biological type, number one. I want cattle that have a proven maternal productive ancestry to them. And we stack cows within a pedigree. And these cows that we're stacking are proven. I mean, they're highly proven. They're the best of the best in the business. When we talk about the Donna 714s and the Black Cat May 4136s. And so I want a pedigree with those cows stacked in the pedigree as many times as I can get. Every slot has one of those great cows in the pedigree. So if I've got a two-year-old here and this two-year-old is everything that I want biologically in terms of type, she's extremely sound in her structure. She's great uttered. She's fertile, meaning that she bred, you know, first AI as a heifer, you know, calved right at the front of the season. Yeah, I'll sneak in and I will steal the flush out of that female. Okay. Because I think that's getting me to where I want to go a little quicker. And I know that we're going to have a lot of feedback on this topic saying, hey, Brownie, you are a huge hypocrite here because you preach maternal, you preach productivity, and here you are flushing some two-year-olds. And there's no question, some of those will wash out. I don't want to make any bones about that, okay? But when we look at utilizing embryo transfer here, we do it really for one of two reasons, okay? Number one, we want to populate our herd with daughters of superior cows. And it might be granddaughters, but we're going to have the superior cows stacked in the pedigree. And then our second reason is we want to produce bulls for our own use, And so, yeah, I will take a leap of faith on a two-year-old. That's not to say that if we're transferring 200 embryos, that 150 of them are going to be out of first calf heifers. No, it's going to be a much different percentage. I think this fall, we flushed 30 different cows. In that group of 30, there were four two-year-olds. And so that's kind of the normal percentage we would look at. But I think the important thing about that being four two-year-olds, four two-year-olds where you can kind of predict what they might be. So like, When we start talking about stacking cows on top of cows on top of cows, I'm willing to bet the farm that those four cows you flushed stacked cow on top of cow on top of cow. Absolutely. Joe uses this term a lot, and this is a term that I never really thought of until Joe said it, where every mating is intentional. And when I pull a two-year-old out and I harvest embryos from her, it is extremely intentional because of the cows behind her. And the sire behind her. When we're talking about flushing a two-year-old, I think at the two, two of the two-year-olds that we pulled out and flushed this fall, one was a OCC Juno out of our 505 Donna cow, who's a resource Donna 714. I'm going to tell you what, that pedigree doesn't get any more proven. You're stacking it. That's what you're doing. (laughs) That pedigree doesn't get any more proven. The other one was a resource out of our 4147 cow. We know what 4147 is. I mean, this cow does nothing but make top-selling females and top-selling bulls for us. And this two-year-old is sired by resource. If we don't know what she is, then we've got problems. And so that's really what we look at. And that's how I justify, at least in my own mind, why I would reach in and pull some two-year-olds out and pull embryos from them. And there again, we're not talking about flushing these multiple times. We're flushing them one time. It's going to accelerate the process for me if it works. 
And it's not going to work every time. Right. We know that. I'm willing to take that risk. Right. It's important to point out there's going to be some fallout on those flushing those three-year-olds. I mean, it's just part of it. Absolutely. And by the way, before we get too far down the road and we let Joe bloviate on this topic, <laughs> let's, let's inform the audience of why we kind of landed on this topic this week. Listen, we're all slaves to social media. We see what we think, or at least what I think is insanity posted on there sometimes. And, and listen, if this guy's listening, I'm sorry to point you out. I won't say your name, but there was someone who posted on Facebook here in the last week. He said, here's my 12-year-old cow. She's had 73, 74 calves, but guess what? She just had her first natural calf. Okay, let me repeat. She's a 12-year-old cow that just had her first natural calf, and he's had 73, 74 ET calves previously. Okay, I will call BS on that. <laughs> you know, at least with a two-year-old, we see that she uh, uh, has good udder. And we see that she has some maternal instinct. And I will go on record. I am very anti-flushing heifers. Have I done it? Yes. Do I regret it? Absolutely. I cannot think of one time that I said, boy, that was a good idea. Let's go a little bit further and let's quote our friend of the podcast, really good friend, Vince Santini. <laughs> what was his comment on the situation, Joe? I don't remember. I don't have it in front of me. But I got other bloviating. Bloviating is a funny word. I'd heard it like two times in my life. And I've used it two times in this segment. I mean, it's incredible. I love it. I think what Vince said was a 12-year-old first calf heifer. And bloviate encompasses you, Joe. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he said, somebody said on there, they said, are you sure it wasn't a shorthorn? And I said, no, she was in April or something like that. And it was, it was pretty good. Especially since I was picking out show steers with my kids this week. I want to talk about this a little because I think that 12-year-old donor one, the one that it really frustrates me because there are some terms from some people I respect. And I do believe in the free market and I do believe in price discovery. But I also believe that if commercial customers who ultimately saddle the end product, they have to use that end product. Of those 79 calves, 35 went as bulls somewhere. And the genetic pull-through of those cattle is immense. It's not a big deal for us purebred guys at all to have one cow and flusher and end up with these daughters that we have to can on down the road. But for a commercial guy, everyone has to count because that may be their one bull that is their complete genetic contribution for the next three years. And so the question has often come up, how proven does a cow need to be? We call a bull unproven if he's got 400 calves and a female, she'll only have two or three, maybe five in her lifetime on average if she's Angus anymore which is a hell of a story in itself. Is she proven really after 10? Well, what I think is a proven cow is one that is proven to settle. She's proven to take a calf to term. She's proven to lay down, have him, lick him off, get him nursed, get rebred and weaning. That means that she has proven to do her job. And without that, you're just measuring in product traits. The traits, oddly enough, and Bob Hoke, I'm sorry, I know we talked about economically relevant traits. Bob is a friend of the program, by the way, and I've developed a great relationship with Bob. We bloviate at each other. <laughs> economically relevant to commercial customers mean a different thing. And when you say things like, let that price discovery and free market figure that out, all commercial cattlemen and women, I believe, in, in general, I believe that they think we would never keep a bull out of something that they wouldn't keep out of their own cows, which out of their own cows would only be the very best that they ever provided, ever. And so when Jordan goes off or I go off or Corbin goes off and we say words like fraudulent, that commercial customer thinks that that female has laid down and done her job because they would never keep anything around that had terrible feet or something that didn't breed or something that didn't mother a calf. And so I don't care what your indexes are. If you're flush, tell you're 12 and you're a first calf heifer, you're not maternal. You're terminal at that point. And even on the biological type thing, when we get into analysis of pedigree and we get into analysis of female production and maternal lines, that's where I think it holds merit. There should be a test that we run before we flush cows. And I say that they need to provide a genetically potent product or they need to provide value. I think a lot of folks think it's a rite of passage. I have a pure red herd, so now I got to flush them. And oftentimes that's what they'll hear from an overzealous embryologist or a consultant because it makes them feel good. It keeps them going and it keeps people writing the checks. And frankly, it also sends you on the next quest for the next donor cow, which Corbin and I got into later. I mean, I'm all for trying to sell donor cows for a lot of money, but I'll tell you, once you get saddled with that $20,000, $30,000 donor cow, are you going to ship her if her calves don't work out? That's a hard decision to make. 
But I'll guarantee if you paid $2,500 for it and it doesn't work out, she's on down the road, right? That was a great conversation that we had, Joe. I feel like if there could have been some breeders on the wall there that could have listened to us have that conversation, and I'm not saying we're idiots, but at the same time, if they could have heard us have that conversation and for us to banter back and forth about what that really entailed, I mean, they might be less apt to go spend $30,000 on a donor. And, and that's not to say there's something wrong with a $30,000 donor, but you might be more selective on where you spend your money. And it's about the comprehensive cost of your donors too, right? I mean, if you look at your entire donor herd and what it costs, and it takes the most discipline to make those decisions, I would say. But there's a couple quotes that I keep in mind when it comes to donors and it comes to genetic proliferation. My favorite is, is with technology, this is one thing you'll hear at every seminar, every BIF thing, AAA thing, hell, you could hear it at any breed association meeting or Transova. They say, with technology, we can move things faster than ever before. Well, the preconceived notion is we're going to make them better. You can make them worse a hell of a lot faster if you aren't careful. And I think that we really need to evaluate these cows and make sure they're adding value and make sure they flush well. Nation average on flushing cows at least 10, 12 years ago was like six eggs per cow. If you're going to flush that cow one time and she gives you five eggs, you pound a bunch of money into her without knowing what her pedigree will do. She'd produce exactly that many replacement heifers into your herd by breeding her AI. So it really doesn't make sense. And it didn't make you in any better financial position. Right. It's stressful. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of figuring things out. The donor thing is difficult. And I would actually argue that in most circumstances, in many circumstances, in fact, large sire groups of mating systems probably will move your herd generally in a better direction. I use flushing to find specific genetic combinations that I want to use in our herd later or specific genetic combinations that our commercial customers like. Now, that makes it sound like I'm flushing 12, 13, 15-year-old cows. And I want to have a correction here because I want to tell you about 6211. 6211 is arguably the best daughter that Torx mom has ever had. Everybody fell in love with her every time they've seen her. She was an SAV seed stock daughter and a very, very productive one. Ideal body type, lines up those female lines just how you want them. She had a nice data package, picture perfect, couldn't draw an udder better on one. Great feet and legs. She scored perfect when the association came out here to score foot scores initially in the research EPDs. So I said, I'm going to wait on that cow. I'm going to wait until she weans her third calf. She had her third calf on the ground when Jared Herps, I don't know if you guys know Jared from Nelson Angus in Idaho. He was out here on a tour and we're going through the blackbird field where we had just a pile of blackbirds and she was one and she had this wet calf and she was cleaning him off and he was staggering around trying to get his first nurse. And I said, perfect. We're going to flush her finally. We're going to do all this cool stuff. I came back from my evening check and she was dead, dead with placenta hanging out of her mouth. Well, mind you, 6071's gone. If 6071 was alive today, she'd be nearly 20 years old. And so that entire seed stock line was gone from that cow and I couldn't use it. So here lately, 4264, a lot of you guys know that cow. She's a cornerstone in our program. The Rito combination on her has worked impeccably well, especially when paired with 4136. She has a daughter, 8204, weaned the best replacement heifer this last year, settled AI. But she had AI service and OCC best jet heifer calf and perfect udder. You guys have seen some of the videos. She's very, very productive, awesome feet. We flushed her and Bennett and I just cedared her. Bennett's my oldest boy. We cedared her back yesterday to AI her. So when this set of embryo calves will be born, she'll have her third calf on the ground. But I don't want to lose that genetic value in those cattle. And I think it's a consideration once you develop a program too, David, we were talking even on semen testing on bulls, it really, you got to take into account your goals and what your program is. And once you develop a program and you say, my program is stacking cow families, you can find some of those predictabilities in the unproven. But to those of you who always ask, what's a proven cow? I mean, come on guys, you got to know that she can lay down and have a calf first. And she doesn't have to have 15 after that, maybe to test long-term fertility, long-term longevity. But I don't know that we have all that data parsed out yet. So I like in our program to have a mix of ages, but I definitely will tell you every single cow we flush has value and every single cow we flush has a genetically potent makeup that fits our operation. Joe, with that being said, I want you to reflect, <laughs> were there cows in the last 10 years that you flushed that you look back now and you go, boy, yeah, she probably didn't merit it at the time. Were there any of those? Any? How about all? <laughs> I mean, in the early years of flushing, we spent hundreds yeah. and hundreds, and I had that on my notes to talk here, hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And from the original branding of Bruin, if that's what you called it, I think we've got one or two cows in the entire herd that goes back to that whole deal. Yeah. But I also think we were just flushing cows then, David. We were just flushing cows because we just flushed cows. I mean, maybe we didn't have a compass. That's kind of the point I wanted to make here. Yeah, I told you where we kind of had this revelation six, seven years ago. And I look back to those cows that we initially dove in with, and we felt this impetus to flush because everyone flushes, right? If you're a progressive breeder, you flush. And I look back at that and I said, that was perhaps a waste of money, perhaps a waste of time because it really didn't propel us to where we wanted to be. And it didn't propel us to this point necessarily. And I see that so much with new breeders coming in. They feel like to justify or validate their program, they have to flush cows. And that could not be further from the truth. I think the only reason to pull embryos from a cow is to have that specific goal in mind of, yeah, I want to populate my herd with this female's daughters because they will be the right kind. This will be critical to our development in the coming years. We see so many folks that they just want to flush cows for the sake of flushing. And they look at it as, okay, this is going to allow us to build numbers the fastest. And when I say numbers, inventory. And I think that's a terrible reason. Without a clear goal, without a clear plan, you'll see those herds start to breed apart. Yeah, absolutely. Especially you see it in their sale catalog, right? They'll have five or eight lots that are all these flush cattle, and then there'll be no middle cattle. Yeah. And then there's a lot of cattle that don't fit. And a lot of times what you do is you gut a lot of the most productive out of your herd yeah, yeah. by chasing and spending all your time on an ET herd. But having said that, I wanted to run across a cow real quick and see if anybody thinks this sounds like a donor. 0.2 on birth, 39 on weaning, 74 on yearling, 13 on Cavanese maternal, 27 milk. Let's see, dollar beef would be 140, dollar C, 245, dollar maternal, 35th percentile. The cow doesn't have a lot of glitz and glamour. She's not really exciting. She's 13 years old. And no matter what I breed her to, she adds value to my commercial customers. And I have guys that will eat up all those sons. And so when I have bigger producers that can come in and buy five sons out of 8616 and they want them, then we provide them that product. And she's a cow that stood the test of time here and it makes sense. And here's the other thing. You'll find these cows that I call are sticky. 8616 is one. You flush 10 eggs out of her, you're going to get nine calves. And then you'll get other cows that give 20, 25 and you end up with six calves and you go, what happened? Oh, there must've been something wrong. We trucked those recips or something. But usually embryos conventionally collected and, and implanted, you'll run 65, 70%. But if you really break it down, you got one cow that's doing 80 and some that are doing 25, some that are doing 50, and we've lopped those off in the name of the economics of it. Yeah. And I think that's extremely important. That was a note on my list here was put all these cows on a short leash. If you're flushing these cows, put them on a short leash, see number one, how many good embryos they're producing and what the take rate is on those embryos. And you'll find that if you weed out those cattle that are low producers or cattle that don't seem to make many pregnancies, economically, it's going to work in your benefit to just get those cattle moved on and just focus on the ones that do produce well. And the environmental influence of the recip. you got to have the environmental influence of the recip. I mean, a lot of times we'll grab these low productive cows, the ones ratio on 80-85 and put an egg in them. Don't do it. It's a waste of time. She has to have equal ability to raise a calf as her donor mother, I would say. And now, a word from our sponsor. Are you searching for semen from Balanced Straight Sires, which are different by design? If so, look no further than Montana Ranch. Semen from Atlantis, Benchmark, Pathfinder, Outcross, Global, Can-Am and Revival is available for immediate shipment right to your front door by contacting David at 406-210-5605 or emailing bulls at montanaranchangus.com. Again, contact David at 406-210-5605 or email bulls at montanaranchangus.com. Now, back to the show. Listen, we could dedicate like a whole episode to recip selection and recip management, and, and perhaps we will. 
because I think that's as important, if not more important than selecting the right donors for your program. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think Vince would agree on that. (laughs) We should have had Vince on. Well, guys, I think we've beat a couple of topics nearly to death. It's been a lot of fun for me. And by the way, here in the last week, I've learned some new lingo from our California co-host here. Let's go have a schmag and a C minus. <laughs> I don't have schmags anymore. <laughs> That's when I was an unsavory fellow. <laughs> I tell you what, you know you're old when the lingo passes you by, and it certainly passed me by. Well, I didn't know how old you were until I asked if you'd rolled up cigarettes in your white t-shirt and you said you'd had. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> At the sock hop. <laughs> At the sock hop. The answer was yes to that question. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Right on. <laughs> oh, me. Well, guys, it's been a lot of fun. Hope our listeners have had as much fun and has learned as much as I have tonight. Guys, thank you for your time. And we'll look forward to seeing everyone back here in two weeks. Until then, keep it underground. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Rack, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.